0: Welcome to Recovery Plus Podcast, Fuck Yesterday, Focus on Today. I'm your host, Dr. May Lee Hannon. Here, we celebrate and honor people in recovery one conversation at a time. Let's talk. Welcome back. This is episode 30. My next guest is Kimberly Clark. Kimberly is a recovered addict and Navy veteran. Kimberly enrolled in the military at 17 years old and was medically discharged at 19 years old and now choosing every day to be healed and operate in her purpose. Kimberly spent over 10 years in active addiction after military sexual trauma and was diagnosed with severe PTSD. She was in and out of jail, rehabs, and psychiatric units trying any and everything to get her life together. After almost losing her life, being on life support in 2020, on January 3rd, 2021, her life was saved. Now she's a passionate mind coach, certified peer support specialist, a published author, the book Stuck Between Pleasure and Pleasing God, a motivational speaker and a state leader for a national veteran suicide awareness nonprofit organization called Mission 22. Take a listen to her inspiring story. Hi, Kimberly. Happy New Year. Nice to have you here. Thank you. Same to you. So let's just start a little bit about kind of what your thoughts were about the military. What made you go in and how old were you? And then what happened?
1: Absolutely. Well, I joined at 17 years old. Um, I've always kind of loved the thought of wearing the uniform. I thought it was, I don't know, you kind of look, um, you get respect when you wear a uniform, right? And so the Navy uniform is one of my actually one of my favorites back in the day so I chose the Navy I went in I actually had a scholarship for the debate team in high school to go to college and I was going to go there to University of Louisiana Monroe and major in psychology minor in social work but I ended up talking to this doggone recruiter and he lied to me Mm. (laughs) like he lies to a lot of people right and you know just told me all the great things that that I wanted to hear and stuff like that. And so I wanted to go to school, travel the world at the same time. So I did that. Went to basic training in Chicago, Illinois, um, was stationed in Guam. So I think I came home for two weeks, um, parted, parted, parted. Um, I think I wore my uniform every day, literally every day for those two weeks. When I got home, I was so proud of the accomplishment I did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I went to Guam. I was an operations specialist, so I basically worked uh, on the bridge. I worked with radar and stuff like that. And so um, I actually got to drive the ship to Helm and Lee Helm. I was taught that as well.
0: Wow. Oh, my goodness. And how old are you at this point doing that? 17. 17. 17. Were you, like, one of the youngest folks over there?
1: Oh, I believe so. I think, well, then uh, there was a lot of people that, you know, that – yeah, they they got in at seventeen, eighteen, around mm-hmm. that
0: age. So, well, that's yeah. amazing. So it sounded great at the time.
1: Right, right. At then, that time, absolutely. And then what? Yeah, and so I would we would party all the time. We would drink. You know, sailors are kind of known for drinking,
2: mm-hmm.
1: so we partied a lot. And this one particular night. I went out partying with some friends of mine. I hung out with mostly guys back then. I was a little bit tomboyish. Still is today. Mm -hmm. And we were drinking and partying, and I got maybe the most drunk I'd ever been and asked one of my friends to take me back to my room. And he took me back, and he raped me. Mm -hmm. And I can remember him. I remember flashes of, I don't remember everything that happened, but I remember flashes of him you know, being on top of me and him saying, I remember this so vividly, man, I shouldn't be doing this, but she's not going to let me do it any other way. And so <sighs> I didn't tell anybody for like the first few weeks. I kind of just, there, but I knew something was different. I knew something was was definitely, shit had definitely shifted within me.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: And I finally broke down and told one of my friends, uh, one of the guys that I called my brother, mm-hmm. I'd met him before I went to Guam, online and he went and confronted the guy with like seven of his friends and of course the guy denied it but it was in front of the barracks so everybody pretty much heard it what happened (sighs) and it got back to my chain of command and um, of course my chain of command had to do something at that point and so um, yeah it was a a series of, of talking to NCIS and talking to a psychiatrist and you know, just a series of of events that happened Mm -hmm. after that that changed my life forever.
0: I mean, let's back up for a second. I mean, first of all, being so young, a woman and a woman of color in the military, one. Two, you get raped there in a place that should protect you because you're protecting the country. So there's this betrayal, right? So what is going through your mind Knowing that it's, you know, the don't tell kind of philosophy in some ways, right? That probably was similar at that point too, yeah? Yeah. To not say anything. So what helped you say something? Was it just because everybody knew or how did that come about?
1: Everybody, the people that were close to me knew something was wrong. Uh They knew something was different. When I tell you something shifted in me that day, something shifted in me that day. And the people yeah. that were close to me, they could see it. They knew something was wrong. They knew something was going on. And and fortunately, I couldn't, I couldn't just hold it in no more.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: I couldn't hold it in. And I had to get that out. I had to get that out of me. But I didn't expect what happened after to happen.
0: And what happened then?
1: That the Navy didn't do anything about it. You know, I went and talked to NCIS. I talked to NCIS every day for a few months. They got me to wear a wire to go talk to him in person, try to get him to confess. He never did. They had um, the phone line tapped by, I called him to try to get him to confess. He never did. He apologized. He said he was sorry, but he never actually confessed to actually doing it. And that's what they was wanting. I'm like, an apology isn't enough. You don't have to apologize to somebody. You didn't do anything to, or you didn't do something wrong, you know? And so that wasn't enough. And I ended up struggling with suicidality. I I tried to commit suicide. I took 145 pills, different pills, just random, whatever I could find. I was Mm -hmm. just, I just wanted to go. And they ended up medevacking me back to the States, back to San Diego. And that's when, um, we did, we was doing trial via teleconference, via, um, uh, video. And he ended up getting away with it because there was alcohol involved at the party. And because he didn't confess, basically, (sighs) he got away with it.
0: And so you had to live with that, and you live with that now. What was it like for you there? I mean, obviously, things were really, really shifting for you. What was going on in your mind at that point?
1: I was hurt. Um, I was disappointed. Yeah, I was angry at the Navy because not only were they, you know, did they let him get away with this, They were trying to just discharge me, general discharge me, like no medical help whatsoever. And literally the only reason why I got a medical discharge is because I kept having to go back to like, what you call I guess the psych ward Mm
2: -hmm, in mm -hmm. the
1: Navy. I kept having to go back because I I couldn't deal with me. I couldn't face me. I didn't know how to deal with that. You know, and I I just, the only way that I saw I could deal with it was to just not be alive. All right, it was that strong, it was that heavy. And so that's literally the only reason why they gave me a medical discharge because I kept having to go back and forth to the hospital. Otherwise, when they first sent me back to San Diego, they were just going to discharge me. They were giving me medical, they, w- they wasn't giving me a medical discharge.
0: So that means what, no support after that, you're just done?
1: Pretty much like no, uh, I think I would have had access to the VA, but as far as like, Uh, help with PTSD, you know, help with the trauma period, right? That I wouldn't have really had, I would have been on my own
0: for that. And it sounds like you might have not survived if that was the case. So here you're going back to hospitals because you're wanting to die, which makes a lot of sense. Tragic, but true. And so who is helping you and how are you dealing with like going back and forth and and were people supportive of you, and if so, who?
1: I was bonding with the other the other active duty people that was there with me at Navy Medical Center Balboa in San Diego. It's where all branches of the military come uh, after war. Like okay. it's a it's a medical center. So I had we had people there, Marines there, Army there. Some people lost limbs, you know. Some people. <laughs> Um, had traumatic brain injury, just all of them were stationed there. And that's where they put me eventually. At first it was just a regular base, um, to, to discharge. Then they put me on the medical base. And so I bonded with the other people there who had post-traumatic stress. I had a, I still have a best friend today and he's still my friend today. Mm -hmm. Um, he was gang raped by five men. And I, I kind of, I guess trauma bonded with him
2: Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm.
1: You know, we just, we found ways to cope through partying, clubbing, um, drinking, of course, you know. And he he had got into, like, ecstasy pills and stuff back then, but I wasn't ready for the drugs just yet. So it was, you know, just mainly alcohol. But we found ways to cope together Mm -hmm. um, amongst, you know, other people that we knew, too, as well. So we bonded with everybody else who was going through some mental health
0: issues. So, as this community, if you will, your age—what now? You're nineteen. Right. Are you nineteen yeah, at was, this time? Nineteen,
1: I believe. Yeah, because I turned eighteen about six months after I got to go on. Oh my God. And so, actually, uh-huh. less than six months. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, yeah, about a year. Yeah, about nineteen, eighteen, nineteen.
0: And at this age, now you're bonding with the, these folks who have some similar experiences you so it doesn't feel maybe as isolating but the partying increased and for you um when did it feel more of an addictive nature
1: um honestly not until i got home not until i was medically discharged Uh at first i thought it was just doing what young people do we just party, right you know i didn't see it as you know, a mental health problem. I didn't see it as me trying to avoid my feelings. You know, I saw it as just just out there, just doing stuff honestly
0: mhm and at yeah. this- and before you got home, like medically discharged literally, what was the end result of this process with the hospital and psych and and mental health and all these kinds of interventions that you experienced before returning home?
1: they were boarding me so like there's a series of things that you have to do before your medical discharge mm-hmm. like go get your wisdom teeth pulled and go through a physical and uh, pretty much all the type of stuff that you did to get in the military you got to do to get out and they, you got to go through classes taps classes which is you know transition uh, classes to kind of get you ready for civilian life kind of, but it really doesn't. But anyway, it's a class to mm-hmm, <laughs> get you ready mm-hmm. for civilian life and all that. And then what? Right. We went through the TAPS program. We went through the, the whole process of just leaving the military, getting your wisdom teeth pulled and, um, like, I don't know, it was just a series of things you had to do, doing a physical and stuff like that. And so you, you do those classes, you get your duty two fourteen, and they send
0: you home. And again, you had to fight for this medical discharge. How did you find that voice to fight for that when no one typically listened to you this whole time?
1: I didn't really know about the medical discharge. Honestly, when I first found out, see, I thought that they was medevac me to San Diego, but I didn't think I was leaving the actual military. I didn't think they were making me leave the Navy.
2: Mm-hmm. yeah
1: I thought that I would eventually go back to Guam. I was hoping i w- I wanted to go back to Guam. I didn't think i I fully understood the depths of what what was happening mm. and I didn't have anybody there to explain that either so i did not I didn't understand it at that time. I didn't know what was going on, mm-hmm. and I just knew that something was wrong with me, and I needed some help, so that's why I was going back and forth. And then they decided to give me the medical discharge. I didn't know anything about medical discharge, honorable discharge, general. I didn't know anything about that back then. I was just hurting. Mm -hmm. I was just hurting.
0: And wanting to feel better and then get on with it, right, with the Navy as a career. So once they said medical discharge, what was that like for you to know that you wouldn't possibly return?
1: For me, it was not wanting to be embarrassed because mm-hmm. my family knew what was going on. I called them, I told them what was happening. I was crying. I'm like, "Can you know, please give me a ticket home. Give me a ticket home. You know, and they were trying to get me a ticket from going, but my command would not get me, would not let me get leave, let me do leave. And so regardless if my family would have got the ticket or not, I wouldn't be able to come home. And so the embarrassment and also. Not knowing what's next, because I, you know, I depended on the the Navy life. Right. I wanted to do 20 years. I was was definitely, you know, um, dedicated to being in the Navy, wearing my uniform, to serving my country. I was completely, 100% dedicated to that. And just not knowing what to do with my life after that. Like, what am I supposed to go home and do? You Mm -hmm. know, what does... I have now, what does that translate as, as a civilian? What can I do with this? You know, just confused about that.
0: So what, so when that happened and then you returned home, what was that like, knowing such uncertainty?
1: I didn't know, I didn't know what to do with myself. That's about the only way I can explain it. Yeah. I didn't know what to do with myself. You know, I got home, I came to my grandmother's house. Sitting around all day not doing nothing, you know. I had an income coming in because I got out with the medical discharge and uh, 50% service connection, so I had something coming in. One less thing I had to worry about, and I just didn't know what to do with myself. I didn't know what I wanted, and I started hanging around with you know family members who were into partying, clubbing, alcohol, all that kind of stuff. Of course, I gravitated to what I knew.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then I was introduced to drugs, and that was the the main coping mechanism, like it was the quickest way for me to not feel, the quickest way.
0: So how did this proceed progress for you?
1: Hmm. Well, I came home, it was like the fall of 2009, a raining and stormy day you
2: know,
1: I I came off of the Navy, I was broken, I was full of fear, I was just Mm -hmm. looking for any way to cope with the sexual trauma I just endured. And so I went out partying with some family members, riding around drinking, listening to music, and we ended up at my cousin's boyfriend's house. And so my cousin, my cousin's boyfriend, and my aunt, they were in the kitchen smoking something off of a can. And I can remember so vividly seeing this, this like constant flickering of a lighter. And so I was already thinking that I wanted to stop being in the pain that I was in. So I was like, I had the audacity to ask my aunt, you know, what is this, what's that? And she replied to me that, you know, baby this is crack cocaine. And the way she introduced me to it was if she was introducing me to a person And so Mm -hmm. I took the can, I put it up to my nose, because I didn't know what I was doing. My mother kept a shelter growing up. Like, when people go to parties, we can go to parties. You know, it was, yeah, it was school, church, you know, getting getting you ready for college, getting you ready for life. That's what it was, my mother, you know, and I thank God for that. But, and so as I put it up to my nose and my cousin's boyfriend corrected me, put it up to my mouth and. As I sucked on that can for the very first hit ever, like I was finally free. I was finally numb. Mm -hmm. But like no matter how hard I chased that high after that, I never got that high again. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know the danger that was waiting on me while I did that. And that was the very first time I'd ever experienced drugs, period. Because I'd never Uh been exposed to drugs ever before, (laughs) you know. My dad was an alcoholic. I knew about alcohol, but I had never been experienced with drugs. And the first time I tried it, I truly 100% believed that I was hooked on it from the very first time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And then then what? So now you've introduced to this love of your life. It's almost like It's interesting how you describe getting introduced to crack cocaine as a person. So now that you know them, what was that relationship like?
1: the way he did that. it was it's like the most toxic relationship ever. you know i I started you know going to look for it on my own. Um, the word you know got back to my family members and my brother who lives in Arkansas. I live in Louisiana to the bottom maybe a six hour drive. Mm-hmm. He came down here in the middle of the night one night when he found out about it and staged the intervention. and he had about maybe six or seven of my cousins, they staged an intervention, and I I went to rehab for the first time in Temple, Texas. And I went to rehab, and I was doing okay because I was going through this uh, MSD program, which is Military Sexual Program for Women, Mm -hmm. doing really good. But the dorm was, dormiciliary was both men and women. So Mm -hmm. I met this guy at a narcotics anonymous meeting. I got into it with one of the girls in the meeting, and they were threatening to kick me out. And I wasn't ready to go home. I'd only been there maybe 35 days. I knew mm-hmm. I wasn't ready. Mm-hmm. And so I was crying at the meeting, and he came up to me, took me to the other room, wiped my tears away, and told me that he knew somebody there, knew the, knew the director there, that he could talk to, to at the very least get me in another program so that I could stay at the domicili. So he did that. He did exactly what he said he was gonna do. We kept in touch with each other. He became my sponsor. At uh-huh. that point, I didn't know. I did not know that you're not supposed. To, the women are supposed to have men for sponsors, and vice versa. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. And he had fifteen, sixteen years. So he did. But mm-hmm. of course, he didn't tell me that. And so, I ended up falling in love with him. And from what he told me, he fell in love with me too, right? And so there I was, instead of, you know, doing the steps, working on my recovery, I'm so worried about my relationship with him and him liking me.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, and, and and at one point I feel like I was really serving him. Uh, and so come to find out he had, you know, he was married the whole time. Um, he would pick arguments with his wife. So she wouldn't come to the meetings that I was coming to, you know, stuff like that. And he had been doing this to newcomers for years. And none of the other women that who I was supposed to be close with in the meeting warned me about it. They knew that I was talking to him. They didn't tell me anything about it. And then when I came for came to them for help and support, they hung up on me. They hung up on me like I'm the one that did something wrong. Like wow. I, I had no idea this guy was married. I just, and this was the first time I'd ever even fell in love with a man before. Mm-hmm. The very first time was with him, and it it steered me away from Narcotics Anonymous, from Alcoholics Anonymous, steered me away from the rooms because of like that whole meeting was sick. Mm-hmm. They were sick. Y'all are allowing this. Y'all are condoning it. If you're not standing up against it, that means you're saying you're okay with it. And then you're, you know, you're neglecting the people that it's hurting. And I don't, they weren't practicing real recovery. And and it it steered me away from that whole life. And so I relapsed. And I stayed out for three years after that. Mm -hmm. For three years. And I stayed in Texas, too. And at one point, my family... Was planning my funeral. They, I didn't. They didn't hear from me. They didn't know, and they thought I was dead. And uh, where were you? And my, Oh, I was in Texas. I was in Temple, Texas the whole time. I just, I was getting high. I was getting drunk. I didn't, I didn't care. Like mm-hmm. I knew that they was concerned, but me wanting to get high was a, more important at that time. Sure. You know, and it's, it's kind of a a mean way to say it, but you know, with addiction, addiction literally always wins. You know, it always wins, regardless of how good of intentions we have. Addiction always wins. And so, yeah, I stayed out for three years after that.
0: When you say in stay the, out, what did that look like, literally?
1: In and out of homelessness, Uh hanging around this uh this one so-called friend I had i was i think I was with her about three years, and uh you know she, I, we would i got my hundred percent while I was in active addiction, my hundred percent service connections meaning I got more money from the v a mm-hmm. was quite literally the worst time to get in advance, you know what I mean, mm-hmm. so I would use up all my money every month. And still have nowhere to stay. We stand with, with, with whoever will let us stay with them.
2: Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. You know, homelessness, just using, getting high, getting drunk every single day. There may be times when we would stay off of it for like a week or so, but that was it. That's only because our body made us. Mm-hmm. only because our body made us. Wow. Three years.
0: Because that's what your body made us do.
2: Hmm?
0: How did yeah. you get the hell out of there? What happened?
1: Just the, the friend of mine, she went to jail. That was the one that was kind of, see, I didn't know, I'm not hood, I'm country, right? <laughs> so I didn't know much about that lifestyle. Right. So she was kind of doing everything in that lifestyle so I wouldn't have to, right? So I wouldn't have to be exposed to it. Oh. And I was exposed mm-hmm. to it still to a certain extent, but only to a certain extent. Right, because I didn't know anything about manipulation, about stealing, about you know all the stuff that come with the street life. I didn't grow up like that. Right, but you know, when you're living in active addiction and in the street life, you kind of have to know that to survive. Right, and so with her being around, she protected me. She you know took care of me. I didn't have to you know do all of the things. Some of the things, yeah, but not all of the things. Mm -hmm. And so when she went to jail. I was left with all the predators, all the wolves. Mm. And I knew I was way out of my element, and I didn't know nothing about it. And so I called my family. Uh, When I got paid, I went and sent them money to get a rental car and all that because I knew I would be broke by the time they got there. And uh, they came and got me, and I came back to Louisiana.
0: So to get out was because you got exposed to the wolves. And that scared, yeah. scared you because you knew your friend was protecting you. And so when you got home, I mean, it's kind of amazing you survived that in the first place. What's interesting is AA and NA at that point abandoned you and betrayed you, similar to the Navy. Right. right so two major things that weren't supposed to do that now have done mm-hmm. that. So that impacts kind of your view on life right so if these things Absolutely. don't care for you so you know going back home what did you do having that knowing those those agencies betrayed you how does that affect you moving forward now
1: well i i i went to another rehabilitation i went to another rehab i was you know steady continuously over the course of the 10 years i was in active addiction i i I repeatedly tried to get it right and that's what I did when I got back to Louisiana. And um, I tried to get it right. I even, you know, got enrolled in school, online school, ICDC, for addiction counseling. Mm -hmm. Um, Eventually got all the way up to my externship and that's when I relapsed (laughs) again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, you know, there was a period of about maybe three or four, four years where You know, I was in and out of rehab, in and out of rehab. Then I met my ex-husband. I met him when I had about seven months clean. He was 30 years older than me.
0: 30 years older?
1: Um, 30 years older. Okay. Those those same issues, you know, that made me want the guy in Temple, Texas, were the same issues that made me want someone 30 years older than me. The the wanting that daddy's love, Mm -hmm. want not loving myself not seeing myself for who I am, not having that self worth, Mm -hmm. you know, not knowing that I teach people how to treat me by how I treat myself, you know, and I wasn't treating myself really good at all, but I just wanted to be loved. And he basically found out what I wanted and became that. So I met my ex-husband. He ended up being narcissistic, manipulative, um, he would gaslight. He would say something, and you know, say he didn't say it. And I'm like, I know I clearly heard it. I mean, try that with somebody with post.
0: Oh, yeah, I mean, it I, feels crazy making, right?
1: Yeah. Right, right. And then yeah. get reactivated. So really, yes, absolutely, exactly. And so I would feel like I was crazy, and so I started acting like I was crazy. I really felt like I was. He had a way of of making me feel like I was just so lucky to be with him. Like he was the Mm -hmm. privilege, you know, and that marriage was for seven years, five of those years I was in active addiction. Um, and that those two years that we were actually together, together, five of those years we were separated. Mm -hmm. And while we were separated, I was in active addiction, but those two years, I was kind of in and out of rehab at that point. Mm -hmm. So I was more, Yeah, I was clean more than I was in active addiction at that time. Right. Right. Mm. And so, man, those seven years, you're talking about not knowing whether I was coming and going, not knowing who I was, not knowing what I wanted, because I was so caught up in being in a relationship with him, Mm -hmm. pleasing him. And I don't know if you know anything about narcissists, but they can Mm -hmm. make you feel like you are the center of their world. And then at the next moment, they hate you. They cannot stand you. They talk about you like a dog to anybody that will listen. And he used me for, you know, my money and my stability or whatever because he had been in jail for 20 years. And I didn't find this out till later. He had been in jail for 20 years for selling drugs back in the day, back in the 90s or whatever.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And he got out under a new law. He he had had a life sentence. And he was out maybe six months when I met him. And so... I eventually found out that, you know, he was bisexual. And they devastated me because it made me feel like there's something wrong with me or I look like a man or why did he want me because Mm -hmm. I look like a man because I acted like a man or, you know, whatever the case may be. Mm. And because he didn't tell me. And so I would hear it from other people and I would ask him, hey, listen, you had a life sentence. If there was something that you, you know, if you were in jail and you, you, you you didn't think you was getting out. So I understand. (laughs) right but tell me the truth just you know let me hear from you tell me the truth if that's what happened he would always deny it and turn it around on me and make Mm -hmm. me feel like the worst person in the world and you know later found out that it was true he was was bisexual before he even went to jail Mm -hmm. so there wasn't a jail thing He was just who he was Mm -hmm. and it just made me feel bad about me and who I was and you know, we we separated. We separated. I stayed out. And in 2018, I just, I had enough.
2: Mm-hmm. I had enough.
1: You know, I had my son. My My son was, what, uh, two or three years old. My mom had both of my kids because I was in active addiction. Um, and because he was a alcoholic who, you know, didn't want to admit he was an alcoholic. And so, and I, I made that decision to give my kids to my mom because I knew that I didn't want them around when I was doing. Mm-hmm. I never ever want them to see me get high. Absolutely. And so I, in 2018, I made that decision. I'm like, I got I to gotta do better. My kids deserve a, a sane mother, a, a, a loving, kind mother, a present mm-hmm. mother. You know, and so I I I went to to rehab in, in Arkansas, and I've been to, I don't know how many different rehabs across mm-hmm. the country mm-hmm. because veterans are able to go to any VA across the country, right. you know, whenever they do. So I went to this this rehab in in Little Rock, and then my ex husband he went to jail again for threatening to blow up the VA. Um, yeah.
2: Good God. Yeah, long
1: story, <laughs> but. the the way I saw it is as crazy as he tried to make me seem, you know, when he went to jail for that specific thing, like, it kind of backfired on him.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: You know what I mean? Like, all the things he said about me, all the things he did to try to just ruin me, to slander Mm -hmm. my name, Mm -hmm. you know, to make me seem like the crazy one, you know, it back, literally backfired on him. So he stayed in jail two years. That whole two years I was clean. And, um, yeah, I got myself together. Got a got a nice truck, got a nice uh, apartment, gated community. I mean, it was gorgeous. Like I really just started, I really saw the light again, got back on my feet.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But back then I wasn't doing it for me. I think back then I was doing it for my kids, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so as soon as the pandemic hit in 2020, there was no more meetings. There was no more, you can't yeah. go out anywhere. You can't just... do anything anymore. And so I got so overwhelmed Mm. and I felt so alone. And literally when I tell you everything else was closed but the liquor stores, everything was closed but the liquor stores. Yeah, literally. Mm. I went to the liquor store and I was off to the races, off to the races and stayed out until January 3rd, 2021. That's when my life was saved. And I haven't looked back since.
0: it is now 2023 january so that's an amazing time and you didn't look right. back what's amazing is that you survived cuz you have almost died multiple times right and absolutely so at this point you know you do so many things for the community for veterans um being a peer support counselor and coach. So looking back at this time in your life, what do you think your relationship is with your addiction and with your trauma now?
1: With my trauma, I'm healed, I'm delivered, I'm set free. Um, I know that I'm constantly growing, I'm constantly working on me, working on you know those limiting beliefs that pop up.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know those um, those those disappointments that pop up. The way that I handle disappointment, the way that I handle like betrayal and mm-hmm. and, and, and things like that. And so I'm constantly growing. I know that I've I've worked through that trauma with EMDR therapy.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I literally worked one trauma at a time, childhood all the way up to adulthood. I worked on them force my addiction. I know that I can never pick up a drink. I cannot, I I wouldn't even be around people who are getting high and drinking. Not even to test it, you know what I mean? Like, I I know that about myself, because Mm -hmm. I know when I go out, when I go hard, I go hard, and I leave home for years, for years. And so, I know that that I wouldn't say, yeah, I'm gonna say conquered, that I've conquered I've conquered. I know that I'm recovered on purpose. I'm recovered on purpose. That's the relationship I have with them.
0: Recovered on purpose. That's so beautiful. Because it's a a defining moment and defining way of looking at yourself now. So you spoke about the fear not really knowing. It was kind of like rudderless, the ship floating somewhere without a direction. Tell me what you do now and what is your direction?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I'm a, uh, as you stated, I'm a certified peer support specialist. Um, I work for the Louisiana Department of Health. And so, uh, by the way, I got to add this in there. If there's anybody who has a record, I'm a two-time felon with I don't know how many misdemeanors, all directly resulting from drugs and alcohol. It does not matter your past circumstances. It doesn't matter your your past life, your disappointments, your toxic relationships. It doesn't matter anything you've done in your past. If you, you can choose at any time to change your narrative. You can choose at any time to change your life. Because there's no way with somebody with a record like mine, I should be working for the Louisiana Department of Health. <laughs> but yet, here I am. And so that tells you right there that you can literally do anything you set out to do if you choose to. Yeah, I work for LDA. Well,
0: well let me stop you right there. I think that's beautiful. I appreciate you saying that because that's what I was gonna say. If there is some people listening, who they are, that are contemplating, you know, there's always this. I'm so unique. There's no way people will understand because I have this unique pain. You know, um, terminal uniqueness, right? And a lot of it is like, well, comparing horror stories. You hear this in meetings and all of Mm -hmm. that, right? I mean, your story is pretty, pretty gnarly. I'm not gonna lie. (laughs) Right. And, and so there were many things in your life that led you to choosing. Sometimes it had to be about your children. Sometimes it had to be something else. But at what point did you recognize and consistently state it's about my recovery for me and not feel shame and or feel less shame and maybe and have no selfishness around that? How did you get to that point, and how do you stay there as much as you can?
1: Well, in 2020, like, when I was getting high, I – see, at first it started me getting high to forget those traumas. Mm-hmm. And then I noticed that when I got high, I thought about the trauma. I'm like, this ain't even working no more, right? Uh-huh. I keep thinking about all these bad things that's happened to me. I have to face this. I
0: have to face this. Oh, you didn't have have to. You chose to.
1: I chose chose to face it.
0: Why? Why would you want to do that? All these years (laughs) you didn't have to, Kimberly, and then all of a sudden. But it wasn't all of a sudden, was it?
1: No, it wasn't. I I got tired. I got tired. I just got tired of me. I got tired of what I was doing. You know, it it wasn't, you know, nothing specific that I did. It was just I, I got tired. Yeah, I think everybody comes to a point where they will just get tired. But it's what you do after you get tired that's important. You right. definitely need to make sure that you have a plan. Whenever <laughs> yes. you want to get away from that stuff, have a plan. Call somebody that loves you and supports you. Say, look, when I'm ready, this is what I want to do. I want to go to detox here. I want to go to rehab here. And after that, I want to go to sober living here. Have a plan so that whenever you get ready, you know what you're going to do.
0: And also, one of the things you kept saying, which I think is so important, is you tried to get it right. You kept trying to get it right. And the thing is, research shows that if you can try to get through the shitty part, the really dark, dark parts, people recover. People actually recover. We know this yeah. as a fact. And you are living proof that. Absolutely. But you got to keep trying. Right? And what helps you keep trying for you? For me, now, what keeps you trying, keeps you going?
1: Just knowing my worth, (sighs) knowing that I have purpose. Literally, everybody has a purpose. Everybody has a purpose. And I mean, don't you want to find out what that purpose is? The only way for us to find out what that purpose is (laughs) Mm -hmm. is for us to get a clear mind. And I'm telling you, when you're operating in your purpose on a daily basis, Right, when you're operating in your purpose, it's you no, know, it's the feeling like no other. It's better than a high.
0: It's the it's best good. high.
1: It is right. <laughs> it is yes.
0: And what is your purpose now? What are you doing that is meaningful to you?
1: My purpose is helping others find um, recovery. It's helping others, you know, get on that journey to healing, to growing, to you know, discovering their identity to overcoming those emotional roadblocks to, and it's deconstructing all those freaking limiting beliefs and mm-hmm. all those insecurities mm-hmm. to help other people see that it's possible. It's, man, it's possible. You can overcome anything that you choose to. Nothing has the power over you unless you allow it to. No matter how deep and dark it is, promise you, no matter how deep and dark it is you can still overcome it. Don't let, don't let that voice in your head lie to you and tell you there's something you can't do. There's something you can't overcome because it is a liar, and you can. I'm a living witness of it.
0: I mean, you know how to do hard. You know how to do hard really well, but you know how to make it less difficult. But You had to make that choice, and I would imagine, Kimberly, you continue to make that choice consciously because that it, it's not perfect system recovery is it it is messy sometimes and these thoughts come up when they come up what do you say to them like one more time come on you can do it let's yeah, do one more absolutely. thing what yeah, do you do you with that
1: forward right yeah just you got to keep moving forward you got a plan and your plan you got to accomplish that mm-hmm. you know how good it feels to accomplish something that you set out to do and i have a list of goals that i set out to do and i intend i will accomplish every last one of them i tell myself you have to keep moving forward no matter what because i already know the result if i go to otherwise i already know i already know the end result i I don't have to play it all the way through because i know years later i'll be trying to get back to where i am right now
0: i mean they say play the tape well you've lived it you can replay it (laughs) if you want to And I guess that's really helpful, what you were saying, is you need to keep trying and know that you can. You don't have to go back there. You don't have to lose everything, do you, to shift? You just no, don't. you don't. But for those who have lost almost everything like you have, you know you don't have to ever go back there again. And what's that like to know for you, that you don't have to go back there again?
1: It's the most amazing feeling ever, to know that I can think with clarity, with a sane mind, right, that I can, that I've dealt with those issues that kept me bound for so long. It's the most amazing feeling to be able to be here for my family, for them to know where I'm at, for my kids to know that that mommy's not going to leave for weeks at a time no more, months at a time no more. right, Right, right. Yes, the most amazing feeling, the most rewarding feeling as well.
0: And the thing is, you're young, just so you know, I mean, you're a vet. At nineteen, that's remarkable. Um, you're still in your thirties, if thirty, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm thirty-three. I'm 30 okay. Okay. 30. You never want to <laughs> ask people their age, but because you've gone through so much, I think it's okay, and I appreciate you saying that. You're young; you have your whole life ahead of you, you know, and you've gone through hell and back, literally. And so, tell me a little bit about some of the things that you're actually doing. You're an author, right? Tell me a little bit how I you know. got your book. That's amazing and the book is stuck between pleasure and pleasing god tell me a little bit about that and how you arrived there congrats by the way
1: thank you so the book um it is a memoir right but i got the title of my book as a teenager like i knew i would write a book as a teenager wow and i've had that title since way back then and i knew January 3rd, 2021, I knew it was time. Well, not that specific day, maybe a week later. But, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) I I knew it was time to write it, because even then, I knew that that was my last time. I'm like, no, that was my last time. You know how we say it every time, this is going to be the last time. I promise. Right, I promise. This time for real. So I I started writing from the beginning of January to the end of December, I started writing. And actually, writing was healing for me, too. Journaling was healing for me.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it took me all of 2021 to write it, but I got it done. And when I tell you the feeling that I got to actually get that book in my hand, something I've been dreaming about since I was a teenager,
2: wow.
0: was
1: amazing. Absolutely amazing.
0: What a so wonderful book, gift for yourself.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yes, indeed. From from that book stem. Uh, motivational speaking, mm-hmm. so I would go, I go now, like, mm-hmm. or like across the country, like, speaking to different women, to different organizations, to youth, you know, not only about my story, but, like, what I've learned, like, what's the solution, how do we move forward, how do we heal, how do we grow, All right, I speak about that, and, you know, as well as a coach, just for women, you know, who want to, to learn to build confidence, who want to and who want to live up to their their, their potential, man? Mm-hmm. And uh, the last thing I do is I'll, I'm a state leader for Mission Twenty Two, which is uh, a national nonprofit organization. We raise awareness to veterans' suicide. The twenty-two veterans that commit suicide every day.
0: But you know that numbers more, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it's actually double. The um, the VA was under reporting, actually. And the numbers actually doubled to forty-four veterans a day.
0: So not only are you an author, but you work as a as a counselor for peer support for addiction, and also a coach. But Mission Twenty Two, quote unquote forty-four. Um, you know what's that like? Because you were you were probably a good recipient for Mission Twenty Two. Did you leverage it for yourself?
1: No, no. I started with Mission 22 in 2018 uh-huh. when I, I was playing in. But when I found out about the statistics, I was completely like just gone, blown away. Right. And I wanted to do something. Mm-hmm. And so I looked up organizations that helped, you know, raise awareness for it and that helped those veterans or those veterans families who's lost a veteran to suicide mm-hmm. and found Mission 22. And at that time, I didn't really know my purpose. So Mission 22 gave me a purpose when I didn't have one. Uh, And I've been with Mission 22 ever since, and now I'm the state leader for it.
0: That's amazing. They're lucky to have you. And it's so good to know that that you are out there, even in the midst of the darkest hours of perhaps your last breath, you have come through and you continue to be motivated and, and be driven with such deep love and compassion for life. It's so beautiful to see. Um, I mean, how do people reach you? Share a little bit how people can contact you.
1: Okay. Well, I have a website, um, www.kimberlycares.org or you can email me at info um, I'm on Facebook as well at Motivation from the Heart as well as um, IG Motivation from the Heart and LinkedIn Motivation from the Heart so,
0: definitely. Excellent, excellent, excellent I mean what a beautiful way to kind of hear your story and how you get to the other side to start the new year um, what is next for you? you've done so much, what is next for you now before we end?
1: next is doing motivational speaking and coaching full time Nice. Right now, it's, it's um you know, it's kind of at the beginning stages. um am mm-hmm. you know, just getting everything situated. But I definitely want to do it full-time. I'm doing it part-time. However.
0: Wonderful. If there's one thing you would say to our listeners about recovery, what would you share with them?
1: To keep moving forward, to keep going, regardless of if you if you relapse, regardless if you, you know, go through grief regardless if you go through a failure, you know, regardless of what you go through, keep moving forward. Because <laughs> look at my life. I'm telling you, I've tried over and over again over 10 years, but I it, it panned out. It panned out and it will panned out for you. Too. So keep the faith and keep moving forward.
0: Well, I appreciate that. Thank you so much, Kimberly. It was a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. You as well. Thank you for listening to Recovery Plus Podcast, Fuck Yesterday, Focus on Today. I'm your host, Dr. Mainly Hennen, celebrating and honoring people in recovery one conversation at a time. This podcast is sponsored by Red Door Coaching and Consulting, and you can find my podcast on Amazon, Apple, and Spotify. Also, you can find me at at my website at www.reddoorcc.com. You can email me at mhenon at reddoorcc.com if you're interested in transformational coaching. Thanks again for listening. Talk soon.